Hey guys, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. More of our exciting DC interviews. Uh, just such a blessing to sit down with so many pro-life leaders who are contending so faithfully in this season. Entering uh, Muriel Bowser's Washington, D.C., uh, where she's very intent on making sure black people can't go to dinner. Uh, it's uh, No, it's actually true. I mean, black people are the biggest racial class that are unvaccinated. So ironically, Democrats are keeping black people out of restaurants. <laughs> How's that for repeating history? But we're here with uh, phenomenal pro-life leaders and got to sit down with some wonderful individuals to talk about life, this political moment that we're in, the cultural climate that we're in, and the importance to stand for life, to make your voice heard. Um, and it's been a gift. Uh, we had the March for Life today, because I'm not sure when we'll <laughs> release this. And 100, 150,000, maybe more people marching for life. Strangely, no pro-abortion um, people there. So um, we're going to try to find some of them tomorrow and force them to defend their bigotry. But this is an exciting episode I wanted to share with you with Melissa Odin and Jen Milborn of the Abortion Survivors Network. Obviously, we've had Melissa on the show multiple times, but Jen Milborn is also a speaker for the Abortion Survivors Network and obviously an abortion survivor. And I've, I've shared with you before on this show uh, the reason why I care so much, particularly about abortion survivors and want their voices to be platformed like crazy is because they're the walking contradiction to the culture of death. They question the entire premises of progressivism, which is that if reproductive health care is this great thing, then that would mean that failure to procure the reproductive health care that mom was trying to procure would be tragic and sad because that means she wasn't able to adequately procure the health care that she was trying to access. Well, failure to procure said reproductive health care has a name. It's a person. It's a human being uh, that's born and has intrinsic dignity and value whether they were wanted or not by their parents. And so uh, this episode will probably tear you up. It'll probably be a tearjerker and hopefully send you out with a broken heart and boiling blood to stand for life for those who cannot speak for themselves. Buckle up, you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. <laughs> So, Jen, Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for making time this evening. Uh, the March for Life was today, for those listening, uh, in 19 to 23 degrees. Not very fun. Maybe that's why the pro-aborts uh, didn't come out. They don't have the courage of their convictions. Um, but it's good to meet you. Um, yes. Melissa's only told me a little bit about you. Um, but as you know, uh, Melissa and I have done events together before. And uh, I have a vested interest in using my tiny little platform uh, to help get abortion survivors in every segment of society. Um, because in my opinion, they're the, that actually strikes the most fear uh, in the heart of Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, Joe mm -hmm. Biden, Maxine Waters, AOC. I could go on and on and on. Uh, because there's, there's just no way to contend with you. Like, right. so like you, Jen, you don't even have to be trained in like pro-life philosophy or apologetics. Yes, all that's valuable. But like your very existence questions the entire abortion regime and the entire position it's built upon. But um, this is fun because I actually don't know your story very much, uh, except that you are an abortion survivor. So for our listeners, I'm hearing this for the first time as well. Um, but I want you to tell your story. Um, what is your story? Obviously, how did you get to where you are now? Um, but but tell us why you are also the bane of the pro-abortion <laughs> movement. I am a bane <laughs> as well. Um, so I survived a vacuum aspiration abortion. Uh, in the spring of 78, my biological mom actually went in for an abortion. And they were where unable... Where were you living? 
uh, Midwestern Illinois, okay. like in the middle. Um, so she went in to get an abortion. And fortunately for her, but fortunately for me, uh, they were unable to complete the abortion because I was further along gestationally. So my head was larger. So it wouldn't fit in the vacuum tube. Oh and, my gosh. And back then, abortionists weren't as well trained as they are nowadays. So, how old were you? How old was I when? When the abortion was attempted. We're, I'm, we're assuming around three, between three and four months. Whoa. And do you know how far along your mom thought she was? I think she knew exactly how far along she was, but oh, wow. she was desperate. And back then, it was considered healthcare. And also the only option for a woman who did not want to raise a child and who lived a lifestyle that promoted the free sexuality and spirit that was prevalent in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just speaking very realistically here, um, let's go back to that moment. Your head was being poked Correct. with a, with a vacuum catheter tube. Correct. That, that would be how... And um, what did your mom do after that? Well, she was told that more than likely she would miscarry me because the um, embryonic sac had already been torn. Oh, right. So she was, and it was very apparent, I'm sure, that she was an alcoholic as well. So obviously that would more than likely help the miscarriage happen. So she was released and said, you know, more than likely you'll miscarry on your own. It's okay. And lo and behold, my life was saved, and I was born at around 40 weeks. Full term. healthy. Mm -hmm. No way. Full term, yeah. Wow. I do, know. Do you know, does your mom have any idea what happened? Did, did like, did the sack seal, or what happened? I would assume that God, no, I mean, I would assume that God healed the sack. Wow. I mean, obviously, my life had a purpose. I can tell you, Seth, that, you know, and as much as this is surprising to even you when you first hear it, what I can tell you is that what I find in survivors that we connect with, a lot of times after they start an abortion procedure and they don't finish it, or in the case that they take the life of a twin successfully and find that there's a second child, the woman, of course, leaks all that amniotic fluid and they believe that she will miscarry, that the child will lose their life. And of course, we also know, and because you're a dad, you've yeah. experienced this in pregnancy, then it puts the women, the woman's health right. at risk. Infection. Right, exactly. And so what we tend to find is that a lot of times the woman will leak all that amniotic fluid, puts child's life at risk, puts her life at risk. And sometimes those children are born prematurely, not long after that abortion attempt was made right. and you know wasn't successful or was halted. Or yes, they are sometimes then carried full term. Nick Hoot, the survivor Nick Hoot, you've probably seen pictures of Nick. He's missing mm. parts of limbs. Nick survived a dismemberment abortion. Yikes. So if we want to talk about is what he the body... at the pro-life summit? He's not, actually. Okay. Josiah is, though. Josiah and I are in the same panel. But people don't want to think about how this logistically plays itself out. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Um, Melissa, do you have any idea about how often something like that might happen, meaning the amniotic sac heals or seals and the pregnancy is able to continue after a failed abortion? Just, I mean, you'd probably be one of the most authoritative sources experientially to, to speak to that. We've seen, we, 
we've essentially seen both. So we see a lot of cases where the amniotic fluid is completely leaked out. And you'll read about it in, in survivor's medical records or in adoption records or a, a biological mom is raising that child and will share that story. People actually read about it in, a, in my book that will be coming out in the fall about abortion survivors. One of the moms is sharing her story and was on bed rest a long time after her abortion failed because she had that change of heart and carried that child to term and is now raising that child. But we also, you know, we do consult with pro-life OBGYNs in cases like this to say, help us piece together this puzzle. And, you know, the doctors don't have all the answers, but they have said, yes, the body can miraculously even stop itself from completely bleeding out after a dismemberment abortion. As you would the say, baby's gnarly. body, yeah, right. The baby's body, yeah, yeah, yeah. You would say gnarly, right? Yeah, gnarly, yeah, <laughs> right. Because I mean, you have people like Nick, um, who don't have all of their limbs intact because of the abortion, and yeah, you would think that they would probably just bleed out right. in the amniotic sac. But see, guys, I mean, this, this is the, these are the kind of conversations that nobody thinks about. I mean, that this this places the abortion discussion um, centered around the preborn child, mm-hmm. which is the entire point of the pro-life position. The entire point of the pro-life position is not that it harms women, but it does. Not that mom will reget- regret it, but she might. That's not the pro-life case. That's not the pro-life argument, which is why I had a problem today at the march when of all the chants they chose to chant, it was uh, women deserve better than abortion. It's like, well, you know, babies deserve better. <laughs> you know, I, I actually correct people a lot. I've been correcting people more recently saying when people say I got an abortion. That's what post-abortive women say. I got an abortion. I understand it. It's just accepted linguistics. I understand what it means. But if you want to be technical and accurate with your language, you know, the baby got an abortion because mm-hmm. abortions are not performed on women. They're performed on babies. The birth canal just happens to be in the way, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the reality of it. And like, you know, I could cite so many abortion leaders and supporters who admit this. Like Dr. Warren Hearn, Colorado, homicidal mass murder maniac, wrote the book Abortion Practice. It's the leading textbook that trains physicians who have decided a priority to crap on the uh, their uh, the Hippocratic, do- the Hippocratic yeah. Oath of Do No Harm. And it trains them how to perform abortions. It's a leading textbook on it. And he says in his, no, I'm sorry, Dr. Warren Hearn, who wrote that textbook, said at a Planned Parenthood conference years ago, he said, we have reached a point in this particular technology where there is no possibility of denial of an act of destruction by the operator. It is before one's eyes. The sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it, oh, Faye Waddleton, she was a president of Planned Parenthood in the 70s. Faye Waddleton told Miss Magazine in an interview in the 70s, she said, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any signal that we can, any a signal that we cannot call it killing is a sign of our ambivalence, a sign that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. Camille Paglia, she's a pro-choice feminist uh, and she defends abortion through point of birth. And she wrote uh, in an op-ed years ago, she said, uh, hence, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is killing, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results 
in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. I mean, this is gnarly language because these people have not become pro-life guys. One more, Naomi Wolf. Uh, Naomi Wolf is maybe one of the most intellectually honest uh, pro-choicers that that is out there. (laughs) But she's still pro-choice. She's not pro-life. And and she said, see if I can remember. She said um, that we need to contextualize the fight for abortion rights within a moral framework that admits that the death of the fetus is a real death. So everyone knows abortion is killing. That's my point. Even the people who defend it and who do it. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's her body, her choice, that means there's one body involved. Right. If there's one body involved, but they simultaneously admit that abortion is killing, then why isn't every pregnant woman dead after an abortion? Mm -hmm. So we really should be saying you paid for an abortion on your baby, not I got an abortion. I'm sorry, I got sidetracked on that. <laughs> I think it's very important to, because these, these are your stories, right? right, right. Your, mom didn't get, your moms didn't get an abortion. The abortion was on you. Right. And, and praise God that it failed. Um, okay. But, and we know that. I mean, even today, as Jen and I were carrying our signs, we carried these blue signs that says, oh, yeah, tell us. said, babies survive abortions, I'm one of them. You could see even mm. people in the movement who have been doing this for longer than we've been alive, who are kind of reading it and going, huh, huh, what does that mean exactly? And little, you know, small children were reading it and, you know, they're trying to turn that corner. And so many times, even, I can't even tell you how many emails I received this week from women who have had abortions reaching out to me saying, can I receive a copy of your healing curriculum? Right. I'm also a woman who survived the abortion that I had. Right. And we're like having to walk this out so gracefully right. to say, right. we're here to encourage you in your healing. We want to see you supported, but we are a group of individuals who survived our actual abortion procedures. Yeah. And knowing as I'm responding to that, how jarring that must be for them because mm-hmm. they're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm reaching out for support for my own healing and I'm actually reaching the very people who are the children that I had aborted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. If I could add to that, um, while we were in the March, we had a large group of teenagers Mm -hmm. behind us and our signs are front and back. So you can read it ahead of us and behind us. And at one point this, uh, about a 14 year old teenage girl tapped me on the shoulder and she looked at me And I knew she understood what our sign said. Mm -hmm. And she had hand crocheted these cute little babies. And she just passed it to me and said, thank you. Oh, wow. And I gave her a little hug and told her I was really proud of her. Yeah, yeah. It was such a great moment. She understood. Yeah, Mm -hmm. wow. A lot of people don't even know what the term abortion survivor means. Right. Right. You know, because when I've used that term before, or I see other people use it online sometimes, what they're referring to is I'm a woman who got an abortion. I'm an abortion survivor. And I'm sure you guys have encountered that way more than I have. It's like, so it ju- it, the only point in saying that is that it just reveals the ignorance mm-hmm. that there is in the society right. that like mm-hmm. people don't even know what that term means. Because again, if they're, if they're only by focusing more on the woman than the baby, can you take away from that phrase, the reference to the mother? Right. 
you're centering more on the mother. And, that, and that's really the whole point, right, is that, is that this, I call it soft bigotry, actually, because a lot of Christians and alleged pro-lifers, they actually say they're pro-life. Um, but their, their focus is not primarily the baby. That's why their leading arguments are it harms women, that women will regret it, that they'll have psychological trauma, or that women are abortion survivors. No, they're not, okay? Now, I have compassion for women, and I know many post-abortive women. Of course I do. And, and I know some of them who have said, I knew deep down. Mm-hmm. And I know some women who say, I, I, believed, I believed the lie, mm-hmm. and I was five weeks along, and I didn't know. Um, so, you know, there's grace and compassion and, you know, we're Christians after all. Um, but at the end of the day, ignorance is not an excuse for evil. Um, and you did pay someone to kill your baby. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the whole pro-life argument is that, is that regardless of the context mom is in, the baby has a natural claim to life mm-hmm. in virtue of being a human being. So, um, when did you learn that you that someone attempted to murder you? I was nineteen years old. I was on break from college, shopping uh, with my adoptive mom. Okay. And oh, so so okay. So your birth mother did not raise you. No, so her sister. So tell us that story. So uh, her sister adopted me. Wow. And I always I grew up knowing I was adopted. Okay. But when you're young, you don't really sit and contemplate, hmm, I wonder why she gave me up. It, uh, she was kind of the fun aunt, mm-hmm. would buy me lots of candy. Would... So you grew up with your birth mother. She was I in the grew picture. up with her visiting. Okay. She was a free spirit, living in her van, driving around, okay. doing her okay. thing. I, I grew up, thankfully, in a stable home. Okay. Uh, so she was a part of my life, but um, I never... I think as a young person, I knew something was off there and I never allowed her to get too close emotionally mm-hmm. to me. And I'm thankful that I right. did it. So, uh, so I was out and shopping. And your aunt, is, so your aunt is your adopted mother. Adopted, Correct. But she knew the whole time. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Well, and I think this is yes. at a point you have to share because wait until you hear how her adoptive mom is connected from the very beginning. So... There's a lot to our story. They're never little stories. So many details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So initially, when my biological mom went to go get the abortion, she went to her sister's house and asked her to drive her there. Oh my gosh. So my adoptive mom was in the waiting room while uh, my biological mom was getting the abortion. And actually, <laughs> my adoptive dad told me that my adoptive mom had begged her to let them raise the baby. Say that again. And not have the abortion. And not have your the abortion. Your adoptive father. My adoptive father. Who was already married to your aunt. Correct. So your uncle. Mm-hmm. Yes. By marriage. By marriage, yes. So, and this was later on, of course. He ended up telling me that he knew she had begged my biological mom to keep the baby. That your aunt did. Mm-hmm. Yes. But she was still in the waiting room. Correct. When they were trying to shove a vacuum into your So skull. my biological mom had told her no. Because she walked into that room to have the abortion. Jeez Louise. So when we fast forward and I'm out shopping with my adoptive mom as a... 19. Correct. As a 19-year-old college student going to Target, getting supplies. In Northern California. In Northern California. I challenged her to tell me something I never knew about myself. And... Just on a whim. On a random, I'm young, I want to know 
Yeah. And what is she ever going to tell me, right? Right, 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 right? Obviously, I wasn't expecting that. Right. You used to take your poopy diaper off in the crib. Oh, <laughs> right. <like that>. Exactly. <laughs> something to share with future kids. <laughs> and um, I would say at that moment, she proceeded to tell me about the abortion attempt. And I would say that Ooh, up until whoa. that point, she had been filled with that guilt. And it just whoa. came out yeah, like most trauma does. Yeah, it's vomited out. Yeah. So, so um, I started crying. Take us to that moment then. I, she told me that. And as a 19-year-old who was unequipped for dealing with that, and at that point I didn't even know the Lord, I began to cry, looked out the truck window. She told me to stop because mm-hmm. obviously she saw the damage um, that had been inadvertently done. and She told you to stop crying? Stop crying, be thankful uh, I was alive. No, that's not helpful. <laughs> which do, which sounds terrible, but she was trying to make it right yeah. as best she could. And I was a good girl and I stopped crying. And I built a wall and I didn't deal with it for 10 years. Whoa. 10 years. I forgot about it. I was so traumatized at that moment, filled with so much guilt and shame. I couldn't even process it that I, I buried it because I didn't want to deal with it. During which time you became a mother at some Mm-hmm. At some point during those 10 years that you buried it. Yeah. Three times. Three kids. Three kids. Okay. Three <laughs> kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, it's Melissa's talked about this before, about the response of, and I'm not saying your aunt is a crazy pro-abortion kook, um, but I'm saying many crazy pro-abortion kooks, their response to abortion survivors when they tell their stories, if it's Melissa on Capitol Hill, um, you know, or something like that is like, well, you should be lucky to be alive. Uh, can you talk to that and maybe kind of the response of the culture of death when abortion survivors get honest right. and finally, because it's hard to tell your story, mm-hmm. right? Especially if you're doing it in the face of the angel of death. Mm-hmm. If you're doing it in the face of, because like me, I'm celebrating you, right? Like everyone in this room is glad you're alive, but like, into the face of someone who's, you know, whose who's high sacrament is abortion and who hates you because they don't know what to say to you. Right. So then they just, they just heap on anger and hatred. Yeah. Um, I think less because they love abortion so much and more because they don't know what to do with mm-hmm. you. Right. They don't know where to put you in their fantasy political philosophy that's built on the mutilated bodies of aborted children because abortion is their sacrament, right? Because abortion says, you must die so I can live. But Christ says, no, I must die so you can live. So maybe, Melissa, talk about, because I think this is important for people to hear, because the church and even the pro-life movement does not know the reality of abortion survivors. Anything. They're basically ignorant. Right. Now, Melissa and I got to do an event together at a church in uh, just outside of Kansas City last year, which was super fun. And so that church got exposed to it. And that pastor is a warrior and a friend of mine. But but most churches aren't going to do that. They don't even know about abortion survivors, right? right? Much less kind of what that's like. Because we all want to talk about child abuse, right? And it's, 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 it's very interesting. We all acknowledge that trauma inflicted on children at earliest early stages of life cause damage later even if they can't remember the events themselves. Right, right. We all acknowledge that as a society. Left, right, it doesn't matter. Like, we all acknowledge that. 
that even if you were raped and molested or physically beaten up or just yelled, screamed at, and treated like trash as an eight-month-old, nine-month-old, one-year-old, and you don't remember it, it Fs you up. It screws you up. Unless you're in the womb. Right. Unless you're in the There's womb. And then the culture of death, you should be happy to be alive. <laughs> right. Like, can you right. imagine, like, how, see, I mean... One of the bipartisan things we can agree on, and probably there's very few things that we can uh, share outrage on in a bipartisan manner in this country, meaning crazy leftist Dem- Democrats, you know, conservatives. But one of those would be if a, if a if a dad was screaming at his nine year old who is visibly traumatized and reliving the rape that he experienced at two years at three years old and that he's remembering or whatever it is, or you know, if a kid was visibly reliving trauma, bipartisan we would agree. How evil, disgusting it is for a parent to start blaming the kid. Mm-hmm. You should be happy to be alive, you little piece of... Right. But that's how they treat you who have to live with the trauma of child abuse. Because mm-hmm. abortion is the greatest form of child abuse. Mm-hmm. It's child abuse that ends in child murder. Mm-hmm. But in your cases, you survived that abuse. Mm-hmm. So maybe talk to that, Melissa, about, about the response of the culture of death to abortion survivors. Well, and I think the easiest way for me to to bring this out is through a conversation I had just a couple of weeks ago with a 10-year-old abortion survivor. Whoa. So I protect our survivors very much and their anonymity. Old, huh? And I can tell you that we've worked with this family for a period of time because this little girl had a lot of questions about her family background. And they've done a wonderful job of knowing that it was time to share age-appropriate information and so they they have been working in their family preparing for it. And then they told her her story. And like Jen, and like when I found out my story, this little girl fell apart. Were and you with her or they, they were just telling you what happened? They told her her story. I wasn't there okay, when they told okay. her. But after wow. they told her her story, she asked to meet me. And how did she know about you? Because the parents okay, had okay, said, okay. you aren't alone. There are other people wow. like you. And oh. so she asked to meet me. and She immediately she, wanted to. She said yeah. a lot of really powerful things. But here are two points that I think should break people's hearts. And this heart. was recently. It was recently. One of the things, and I knew ahead of time that she had already posed this question to her parents. But she said, I'm so afraid that my biological mom might come looking for me again to try to take my life. Oh my gosh. And I can Holy tell you, Seth, before people want to judge this family and go, wow, why did anybody tell her? No, you know what? As survivors, we live with this very innate fear that our lives are always in danger before we can ever even understand it. And I always tell people we're in fight or flight. And so people know me as a fighter, yeah, yeah. but that is a place that I had to learn to go to because I right. used to be somebody who would flee. Right. And so for this little girl to have this understanding. That was her first response. That was one of her first responses. But here's the other thing she said to me. In the midst of this conversation, she looked me in the eye and she said, do you think anybody else will ever love me besides my family if they know my story? She said, I want to be a mom someday. I want to get married. And so this little girl, just like us, is so deeply afraid that other people won't love her if they know what someone else already did to her. And so what should that tell people on either side of the aisle about who survivors are? 
We feel rejected, isolated, alone, misunderstood, right? right? All of those things attacked, unloved, unworthy. And that's where people are getting it wrong. Because there is no other trauma victim in the world, I truly believe, that people would look upon and say, oh, you you don't exist. Your pain isn't real. You're made up. Right. Nobody. It's not acceptable out here. It's unless you're a baby. Yeah. And so someday this little girl is going to grow up into the world. And you know what I told her that day? I mean, I had so much to say. But I let her know, of course, she's loved. Yeah, yeah. And she's always going to be loved. But I said, my job? is to keep educating the world so they know about abortion survivors and who we are. So that as you grow up, they they know who you are and they're not scared of your story. There's a lot of misunderstandings um, regarding how prenatal development works. Now, I know this sounds like I just went on a total tangent uh, (laughs) and ended a beautiful um, point, but it it actually relates. A lot of people who are even pro-life or say they're pro-life, they talk about the baby and the unborn child as a constructed thing. And what I mean by that is it's similar to a Corvette assembly line, that pieces are added on this assembly line, these Mm -hmm. pieces are added. And so you ask the question, when did it become a Corvette? Well, no one thinks that it's just like the steel frame. That's not a Corvette. What about if the steel frame and the engine not really yet. You see what I mean? It only, really only maybe until, you know, all the uh, fiberglass or whatever they make cars out of another day. It, when everything's on and it's painted and, you know, there's actually headlights in there. Like, it's like, okay, now it's a Corvette. Mm-hmm. People think that prenatal development happens like that. Mm-hmm. That the unborn child is like a constructed thing. That pieces are added to. So it's not, it's not its whole entity. It's not its whole self until this last thing is added or something like that. That's not how prenatal development works. Human development is, the best analogy is a Polaroid photo. So you, mm-hmm. you, you take a picture and it spits it out, remember? And right. you shake it like, oh, I got this picture. And so, <clears throat> Jen, if you got a beautiful uh, picture of a sunset, actually there was a pretty sunset tonight in D.C. Um, and it's one of a kind, let's say. And Melissa and I, we have iPhones. We don't carry Polaroids, but you're hipster. You're cool. You know, you have the vintage stuff. And so you have a Polaroid camera and you capture this picture of the sunset, right? And, and if you, oh, you're so excited to see this develop, right? And then I rip it out of your hands. I tear it up in little pieces and I throw it onto Muriel Bowser Street. Now you're angry with me, but I say, Jen, it wasn't a picture of a sunset. It was just a black smudgy on a white piece of paper. And you would say, well, Seth, you don't understand how this works. <laughs> the sunset was already there. We just couldn't see it yet. Mm-hmm. Everything that that photo needed to realize its full development was already present when the photo got spit out. That's what I mean when I say from the moment of conception, right. you were a distinct living and whole human being who already had everything you needed mm-hmm. to realize your full growth and development as a participating member of the human species, even if we couldn't see you yet. Right. You also just needed time. The reason why I explain the confusion regarding how human development works between a constructed thing and a developed thing that intrinsically directs its own development Mm -hmm. is if the unborn were merely a constructed thing, then any harm done to 
it during the construction stage would not affect the future them. Mm-hmm. But because they're a developing human being, fully and wholly human at conception, right. not a potential human being, a human being with great potential, mm-hmm. then harm done to that human being at any stage of their humanity can or will inevitably impact them later because we are embodied and sold human beings. Human life doesn't begin at the second trimester or whatever stupid trimester framework Planned Parenthood v. Casey came up with in 1990, right? You're a human being the whole time. They're, they're, they, by the way, the trimester framework was just pulled out of thin air. It was just pulled out of the butts of lawyers. It was the legal framework they created because it's the same human being the whole time. Right. That's my point. And so, of course, we acknowledge harm done to infants because we realize that they will be the same human being at all stages that they're alive. So any harm done to you can or will impact you later. Oh, unless you're a fetus, unless you're in the womb. So like I like to ask, well, what happened during that six-inch journey through the birth canal? Like, did the fetus fairy fly up? (laughs) Like Tinkerbell? And just just throw magical personhood conferring fairy dust on you? (laughs) I mean, this birth canal is a very very strange thing, Jen. It confers personhood. Um, Of course, this is asininity, and it makes no sense at all, because deep down we all know our lives didn't begin when our last toe slipped out of the birth canal. Our lives began when every human being's lives began, the moment of conception. So I thought it was important to build that out for people because that should be self-evident, but it's not. And so, of course, you were you mm-hmm. when you were still in the womb. Yep. I mean, that's... What has it been like for you, Jen, as an abortion survivor? Um to begin to find your voice, uh, to heal, and then to live in a country with a court that tells you you have no right to exist and with a president who, if he's even aware of who he is, um, it's a conversation for another time. Um, Of course, Joe Biden's been pro-abortion his entire political career. So I'm not just taking a jab at him because he's obviously in mental decline. Uh, He's always been radically pro-abortion. To live in a country with a president um, who tells you, and a vice president, good Lord, is that woman the devil, um, that uh, that not only do you have no right to be alive, but you should be dead. Um, but maybe take us back to 10 years after 19 years old. Uh, that's a long time to, to not tell mm-hmm. and to bury that. Yeah, and I, um, at that point, I began to realize I was married. I had been married for seven years at that point and had three babies uh, very close to each other. And I realized I wasn't being the wife and the mom Did that your I husband know? wanted to be. Uh, I believe it came out when we were having one of those get to know you, husband okay. and wife, early conversations, you know, yeah. being married the first five years. Uh, but I didn't give very many details and sure. just kind of left it out there. And he was gracious enough to just let it sit there because <laughs> it was not the time yet, obviously. Sure. I wasn't healed. Uh, I was actually at a women's prayer meeting and uh, women were sharing their hearts on things they had gone through. And I had already been kind of wrestling with that trauma, yeah. not even knowing to even call it a, the word trauma right. at that point. And my pastor had gotten up and shared how she had been adopted, which I had been also. And I, so I could relate with that. Mm. And I will say when you are almost aborted and adopted, 
that's still two rejections right yeah, there. Yeah, it is. Even though I went into a kind, loving family, you know that, mm-hmm. there was still a rejection that I faced yeah, growing they, up that they I call was it made the, fun the of. The primal for. wound. Correct. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, yeah, that was something that hurt me. I will share as well to this group of lovely women. (laughs) And so I shared the adoption portion of it. And then it just spilled out of me that I had almost been aborted. And the entire room. So is that your first public? Yes. So how did they respond? Um, Well, the room went quiet and I was completely horrified that came out because I was I meant to hide it probably, Mm. I guess, for the rest of my life. And my pastor came right over and just grabbed me in a hug. And um, I knew the room was full of non-judgmental women. And they oh, what's there? I mean, love. yeah, I mean, I mean what what's there to judge? That? I mean, you didn't do anything. No. And I was a pretty new Christian at the time, too. Yeah. And uh, so that kind of began my journey. I, I realized, oh, I have a problem. There's something here that needs to be fixed. And, of course, I relied on the Lord and through prayer and I began to open up to my husband a little bit here and there, but it never occurred to me to go online and so, type in surviving yeah, an abortion. So how did that happen? Uh, well, actually, I still never looked for anyone else because I was so convinced it was just me. Mm-hmm. There was so much guilt and shame there. Right. And, cause and I that's was what the, most abortion survivors absolutely feel. Absolutely. We're like, oh my gosh, I have to be the only person in the whole world that this right. happened to. Right. Because it's never covered by any yeah. like mainstream media source. Mm-hmm. It's never talked about. And because all abortion survivors are silent for so long, mm-hmm. then every, yeah, everyone feels well, like Well, it's such right. a shameful rejection. <sighs> yeah. Like, it's embarrassing. You don't want your friends and people to know about, know that about you because then they right. might reject you also right. because you were initially rejected. Um, Melissa, talk a little bit about how what she just said and that experience mm-hmm. actually mirrors the experience of lots of victims. Oh, absolutely. Not... I'm not talking about other abortion survivors, right. just other victims of injustice, of violence, of abuse. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if I'm correct here, because I'm ignorant about a lot of this, that experience is almost word for word, the experience of people who suffer all forms of trauma, and, but the common denominator is the same. They're not to blame. Right, exactly. We do have so much in common with victims of every kind of abuse and trauma you can Imagine I was actually just having that conversation with someone after the march today. And it is this kind of internalized shame that any victim of any kind of abuse or trauma carries with them of there was something so wrong with me that someone took advantage of me, broke me, attacked me, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things. Mm -hmm. And I can never tell anybody about it because A, there was something wrong with me that made me a victim in the first place. And then B, I will be further victimized or people won't love me. And I already struggle with self-esteem and self-worth. And so I can't handle any more rejection. I can't put myself out there. The world is not safe for me. I'm not safe for myself. You know, gosh, I could walk this out a million times over. And what people probably don't know about me, but I, you know, a little bit about my background. You know, I'm a master's level clinical social worker. I worked in the fields of sexual assault and domestic violence counseling. I worked with children who had been abused. I worked in drug and alcohol treatment and mental health. Yeah. I saw myself so many times in the lives of the other people that I was serving. But isn't that so much what that victimization does is it makes us feel so isolated and alone in our experience. Right, right. And so even though it's uncomfortable, and we talk about this a lot in our survivor community, even though we know that it would bring us some amount of, of freedom, knowing that there were the people like us, 
you get so entrapped by that shame. Right. As uncomfortable as it is, you get used to it and you sit in that space. Mm. And so we hear that so often. I think I've heard you use the term before. I dissociated that day from from that experience. And I hear that. And again, we know that through victims of other abuse and trauma, you disassociate yourself from that part of your life because it gets easier to manage. Like I think you've said it and I've heard other people say it. Mm. I had to be able to be a wife and a mother. I had to hold down a job. So I had to place that part of my life that is the core of my very existence for survivors. Our rejection, the attacks on our lives are the very core of our existence, mm-hmm. yet we place it on a, a shelf right. so we can function. function right. yeah. But yeah. And that's, that's, well, that's what, um, well, we, actually all human beings have a tendency to do Oh, that yes, absolutely. With any, with any type of trauma or, or places we just don't want to go because mm-hmm. the experience is too much yeah. to have that wash over you. Um, and, you know, I've. You know, like many people, I've been in dark seasons of my life where mm-hmm. it's like I, I can't think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's nowhere on par with my mother tried to kill me um, right. or she paid someone to do it. Um, but man, that story from that 10-year-old girl. Um, I mean, I, I would ask you guys watching this um, to share this episode. Uh, I have a couple more questions. But with friends, uh, particularly who are pro-choice, um, and uh, offer to pay them to listen to it um, and then take them out to coffee and, and ask them what they thought about it. Um, because that 10-year-old girl's story, uh, which I, I, I am sure you guys resonate with, um, tells you everything you need to know about the abortion debate, which is that that child in the womb is the same human being now, mm-hmm. or else the harm done to her at the prenatal stage would have no relevance to who she is today. Mm-hmm. So this is what, then again, I'm just going back to my constructed versus developed thing, but that's why when uh, pro-choicers say, it's not a person yet because it's not self-aware, it's not conscious, it doesn't have certain attributes or functions that I say are necessary to meet my litmus test of personhood. And if you don't have those functions or cognitive abilities or accidental properties, you're not a person. Uh, I'm getting more philosophical. These are very stupid arguments. They can be easily debunked very quickly, but they sound very intellectual. But really all you need to disprove something like that is that girl's story. Mm-hmm. It's like, then why is she being impacted by this? Right. Because it was the same human being then. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jen, um, you start sharing your story, you start the right. journey of healing. How do you find Melissa Odin and the Abortion <laughs> Survivors Network? How did that happen? So she was speaking in California a few hours away. And no I, way. We had Church or what? What was it? Pregnancy Center. Oh, oh okay. What I city? can still remember where I was standing. Near Turlock? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, and so my friend who had been at the women's prayer meeting, who I, I, I do want to reiterate, every woman there I knew was silently praying for me um, and showed me nothing but love. And to have an entire room of women yeah. do that after such a shock, yeah, I mean, that will stay with me for the rest That's of my life. That's actually really good. I was at, cause when I was actually afraid you were going to say a bunch of the women were post-abortive because mm. you've talked about that before, Melissa, mm-hmm. about how the stories of abortion survivors spark shame mm-hmm. in post-abortive women who then sometimes can get angry mm-hmm. and then heap more on you right. to deal with because 
you're the living example of the child that they should have given birth to. And that's not fair. Right. right? That's well, not no, fair at all. For, than not, they are so... Right. Or you could be the catalyst they're to their so healing. They're so taken with right, us. Right, sure. More often than not. But right. the people who we will meet outside the Supreme Court... Right. Yes, are the ones who are the heapers yeah. of the shame. Yeah, because of yeah. it reminds at. them, oh, look, here's a person similar to who my baby would be if I hadn't killed her yet. But anyway, well, so, but they were also very supportive. Praise God, yes, you had a supportive community. I have community. to add on to that thought, though, because I met a woman who had had two abortions, and one was forced. And after she was done telling me her entire traumatic story, I said, can I hold your hand? And we held hands, and I said, I want you to know the pro-choice community does not want us to be friends. Right. It was powerful. It was wow. amazing. And she just reached over and hugged me. And I said, yes, this, this is how we're going to be in relationship with one another. Mm -hmm. It is not those of us who are aborted versus those who have had right. an abortion. But she's pro-life now. Mm -hmm. She is pro-life yeah, now. She wasn't still saying it was your no. mother's right to kill you. Right, right. No, <laughs> but that's, the, that's one of the leading arguments with pro-choicers is they yeah. try to get those women who are post-abortive and even have come to the Lord right. still to look at us like we're the enemy yeah. that survived. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's how you found me as I spoke at that pregnancy center event right. and a friend yes. had approached me that night and said, hey, I I have a friend who survived an abortion. I so was going, yeah, that's so your friend right. told you to go? No, you were she came to my work and brought after me the event, yeah. after the event oh, so you and didn't brought go to me the her event. email address. You I, didn't go to the event. I okay. still didn't know there were other abortion okay. survivors. Okay. I even spoke at a pregnancy center that she had been at like a few <laughs> years prior and they never mentioned her name to me. Oh, so you had already been doing some speaking. I just spoke at the one pregnancy center because they, um, so one of the women who was in the group, the women's prayer meeting group, uh, she worked with a pregnancy center and okay. told them all about my story. So they brought you in. So they brought me in to do an article and uh, speak at their fundraising gala. Okay. And that really was the beginning of my healing. Yeah. It um you had asked earlier how uh, like how that would make me feel or an abortion survivor it empowered me and not mm -hmm. in a feministic self focused way right it empowered my voice like wow I could help others and I can heal yeah. I don't have to stay broken I right. don't have to stay um, traumatized by this. Right, right. And literally, I spoke that one time, and a few years went by. Mm. And that's when my friend showed up at my work, gave me her email address, and said, there's another survivor. Right, right, and she right. called her an abortion survivor. And I didn't even know that was a term. Oh, really? No, I don't know the right. lingo. Right, right. And I said, what's an abortion survivor? <laughs> and she said, you, you're one. I said, what? <laughs> and um, she said, you need to email her. And I, I gave her your email also. And I said, why? <laughs> and I think it was a few weeks. Mm -hmm. I did not respond. I didn't send anything her way right away. Because, I mean, that's so weird and awkward. The entire subject of abortion is awkward, especially when you bring us sure. into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think I sent her a very small, awkward email back. But yeah. the real Melissa Odin, she exists, emailed me back and yeah. told me, more things about myself that I could even possibly know. Oh, she wow. knew because she was one. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the rest is history. And here yeah. we are. Yeah, you can only take people where you've already been. Right. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. Um, is this your first time in the March for Life? 
Yes, this yeah. was my first one. Yeah, wonderful. Did you get to do some speaking? No. Well, yes. Oh, yes. I thought tomorrow. I saw something on social media. Anglicans for Life? Yeah, yes, yeah. that's tomorrow. I do. Okay, you do tomorrow. I'm excited. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Yeah, so for people listening to this, I don't know when we'll release this, but mm-hmm. uh, today is January 21st, uh, 49th Annual March for Life. Tomorrow, then, mm-hmm. is the 49th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. January 22nd. Our death sentence. 1973, that's right. And then 91, or 90, it might have been 91 the year I was born, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, mm-hmm. which reaffirmed the ruling of Roe mm-hmm. um, and created the trimester framework. Mm-hmm. And also created the undue Correct. burden standard. The undue burden standard is more mealy-mouthed subjective terms, which mean virtually nothing. But basically, uh, states can pass pro-life legislation against abortion as long as it doesn't cause an undue burden to the woman. The pre-born woman? No, no, just the mother. Um, and uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey is Anthony Kennedy's mystery passage. And uh, if you haven't read it, he, Anthony Kennedy, he said something like this. At the heart of liberty is our right to define the mystery of human life or of existence and the mystery of human life. Hmm. And you should be thinking, eh? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, I mean, you want to talk about the conclusion of postmodernism mm. and the sexual revolution. It is that phrase right there. Mm. Uh, you know, phenomenal natural law thinkers like Robert P. George and, and others um, always kind of joke about that uh, that phrase because it's just like what? at the heart of liberty is your right to define reality and the right. human existence and the mystery of human life um, which I always, always made, made me want to ask was there any reality attached to Anthony Kennedy <laughs> such that I should respect the conclusions he reached about the mystery of human life because if it's all mysterious and at the heart of liberty is our right to define that mystery. What if my reality and the definition of my understanding of the mystery of human life is the opposite of your definition of the mystery and understanding of human life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, so this was like, it was the ultimate hilarious, um, but like, you know, mealy mouthed could be perceived as confusing phrase that just epitomizes relativism, which is that there is no objective truth. There is no truth or an objective moral standard that we're all beholden to. We can just define reality. And that's essentially what he said. We can define reality. And the only reason I say that is to make this point. Abortion is the single biggest piece of rotten fruit from the sexual revolution, Mm -hmm. from the postmodernist movement. Because if you can murder an innocent human being and define them out of existence by labeling them a non-person, there's nothing else you can't do. We're through the looking glass now, folks. Welcome to Alice in Wonderland. Welcome to La La Land, where you can just do whatever you want. Now, of course, pro-choicers will never allow their litmus test for personhood to be arranged in such a way that their personhood rights are removed or compromised. (laughs) So the unborn becomes a very convenient victim, Mm -hmm. don't they? Their and that's why are we're silent. inconvenient. That's right. Because your screams are silent. Someone said the other day, this floored me. I don't remember where I saw it, but the Canaanites and the Israelites participated in child sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Molech. Mm-hmm. It's this 
bronze god or deity. It's just Satan, right? <sighs> and a big furnace underneath his hands, and they would cook their babies on his hands. Um, and the belief was, like all people who participate in human sacrifice, the belief was they would receive a blessing in return from that uh, deity. Well, the Canaanites would beat these drums to drown out the screams of the children so that they couldn't hear them. And someone said the other day in relation to that, they said, we still can't hear them. We still can't hear them. In wombs with silent screams. So they become a very convenient victim. Mm-hmm. Grateful for your voice and your Thank story. You. I pray you get more speaking opportunities than you know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, for you guys listening to the show, uh, there were no pro-abortion kooky crazies at the March for Life today. Very strange. I've never seen that before. Um, I went to the Supreme Court steps early where they always are and they were nowhere. Um, But word is that they will be at the Supreme Court steps tomorrow, the anniversary of Roe vs. Wade at 1130 a.m. Word has it on the streets. So we're going to go over there uh, before I fly out of Reagan and uh, try to poke and prod them and uh, get some good content to to make a public spectacle of them. Seth, that's not very nice. I thought you were a Christian. Um, No, that's called fighting. That's called contending against evil. And if I can use someone, I don't cuss and I don't verbally attack you, but you know what I mean. If I can contend with you and expose your bigotry so that others can see it, I'll do that. I only say that to say this. If you want to come along, one or both of you are welcomed. No expectations. Uh, But one day, um, I know Melissa and I will do that. uh, (laughs) We'll really take some pro aborts to school. To the school, we of might life, have some to ideas. The school of natural law, yeah, we yeah. Have some ideas. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot we'll we'll do together in the future. Um, well, we have pregnancy center directors that listen to this show, um, and so if you're watching and you're involved in the pregnancy center movement, you obviously already know who Melissa Odin is. You probably have had her at your banquet. Um, some of you have had me or haven't, uh, but look, mm-hmm. look, Jen Milborn. Um, are you with Ambassador Speakers Bureau? I am. You are now. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, so just putting that out there for you guys. Um, as we close out the show here, um, Jen, I, I would love to ask you this because Melissa's spoken to this a lot before. So I want to give you the chance. What would you say, um, not to pro-aborts, not to the culture of death, to pastors mm-hmm. and Christians mm-hmm. who, um, who worship an unborn child, God himself, who, who enters human history mm-hmm. in a uterus? I mean, that's what we just celebrated last month, mm-hmm. the incarnation. Uh, that's what it's always been hard for me with the silence of pastors. Like, dude, you, you worship an unborn child. God becomes a fetus. How is the church the, not the most vocal pro-life institution in the freaking world? Um, but just with, take as much time as you'd like, but what are your thoughts and what would you say to pastors, to the church, Protestant and Catholic, who are virtually silent on this issue? And then what's that like for you? either going to which I don't know who, where church you, I don't know anything about what church you go to, but I'm assuming they're not doing enough because <laughs> very few are. But what's that like um, as a Christian who goes to a church where you talk about loving orphans and widows and their distress and the least of these, right. uh, but that being actually, who you are, what's that like? And what would you say to them? That actually <clears throat> was uh, what I was going to say something to is we are called to love period. And uh, we should be loving people more than the sin that they commit or um, not putting as much emphasis on the sin that has happened. But always the people should be 
foremost. And when you've got abortion has become a political topic, it's hot, it's um, emotional, it is in right. your face, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable. And when we shy away from the uncomfortable, we're not doing what God has called us to do. Mm. We're in a world that's been taken over by Satan, by sin. Yeah. And if we're quiet, how on earth are we going to get the gospel of the kingdom out there? Yeah, that's right. So it's not loving to say nothing. Correct. That's right. That's not, that does not show love. <clears throat> that's right. <clears throat> that's powerfully said. I, it reminds me of uh, something... Uh, we talked about this the other day on the podcast, something that Wormwood, um, screw tape said to Wormwood. So C.S. Lewis's book, The Screw Tape Letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, screw tape is this uh, sort of cheap demon. And he's sort of, uh, he's mentoring a junior demon. <laughs> and so Wormwood is the junior demon. <clears throat> and he calls screw tape his uncle or something. And uh, screw tape is teaching Wormwood throughout the whole book. Um, how to ruin people, mm-hmm. how to get them addicted to sin, how to ruin their lives, how to cause havoc and wreck havoc in the kingdom of God or in, the, in, in his people um, to cause what Satan does, chaos. And he speaks to Wormwood about men who feel the right things. Maybe they know the right things. Maybe they, 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 they hold the right beliefs if them but they don't actually do anything mm. about the evil that they see. Uh, kind of to your point, and, and it's powerful. So here's what he says. He tells Wormwood, as the humans have said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, mm. but passive ones are weakened. The longer he, being the humans, <clears throat> the longer he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. Mm. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. So, and I mean, people love this book by C.S. Lewis because it's very, very convicting because C.S. Lewis touches so many aspects of spiritual realities. Mm -hmm. And so you can't read the screw tape letters without going, oh, frick. (laughs) I'm compromised in that area. Mm -hmm. I'm giving Satan ground or, or I'm getting in a, in a rhythm of, of sin or apathy. Like, you can't read the book without coming away with that. And so he's what he's telling Wormwood is, <clears throat> yeah, I love it when humans feel all the right things and they, they pay lip service to the pro-life movement and they believe all the right things, right. but never act on it. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love Christians who watch and they feel and believe all the right things and they don't do anything to implement those beliefs. That's my favorite, says Satan. Because in the long run, he won't be able to act at all and then in the long, long run, he'll be dead inside. He won't mm-hmm. even feel anymore. And so as I try to tell churches, when I try to get them to understand that they have to do something about abortion, my point is, is that the longer that you don't, the more dead you become. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just like physical atrophy occurs through not using your muscles, right. moral and spiritual atrophy occurs through not using your voice. Mm-hmm. And that's so, that's, you know, your experience to, to what, to your point is that. These pastors and people, they say, <clears throat> they believe the right things, they feel it. They're not doing anything. Right. Yeah. Well, we talked for a long time. That was that was fun. I hope I hope this blessed people. I hope you guys listening were moved, convicted, uh, angered, dare I say. Um, and this would be a good episode to share with 
uh, your pastors, <clears throat> your friends, your pro-choice Uncle Bob before Super Bowl Sunday, um, and have conversations. Go out now, friends, um, and avoid Satan's strategy of making you feel all the right things and doing nothing about it. So <clears throat> we all have a role to play. I'm not telling you guys listening that you have to go be pro-life activists, but I'm saying if anything that we have said in this podcast is true, then it means that you have a personal responsibility to do something, something, because this is a genocide. And unfortunately, uh, there aren't very many survivors of that genocide. Right. 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 Not very many escaped those forceps, those catheter tubes, <clears throat> or those poison pills mm -hmm. that you guys did. Final words you want to share? Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. Thanks for you know being the bane. <laughs> that's that's you guys of the <laughs> of the abortion industry right yeah. alongside us. Yeah. 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 One probably one of the most silenced. Not, I'm not saying you're silenced, silenced communities uh, and survivors of trauma because <clears throat> the culture acknowledges the importance of talking and acknowledging trauma for every other victim class, mm -hmm. right? Oh, the culture has open arms. They want you to feel like you're welcome, then you, you shouldn't feel like you're at fault unless, unless, you were trying, unless they tried to kill you in the womb. And then, oh, we don't want to hear your stories. We don't want to hear them. And I think that blows the cover off the whole game. It gives the whole game away. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because if you were an insensate blob of non-person untermensch, to quote the Nazis, means subhuman, if that's who you were, then they wouldn't matter to talk about your story because that wasn't the real you. You weren't a person at that stage of development, so what, why does it matter? Mm -hmm. So your, your, your story's in existence. It, 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 it gives away the whole game. Uh, everyone who is a pro-choice activist or abortionist or defender, uh, they know. They know. We all know we're killing babies. Oh, heavy episode. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in today. <laughs> um, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're, I'm a small, humble, pro-life podcast, but with God's grace, it's been growing and we're reaching more people and I get your messages that you're involved in sidewalk counseling. You're at a pro-life pregnancy center now um, uh, because of the podcast and, and, and the truth. So thank you guys. Uh, we will put... Um, Melissa Odin's and Jen Milborn's uh, information in the show notes. I know you're, I saw you have a Facebook page and, and any other information you have, we'll put on there to connect with them. Um, and listen, anyone listening to this podcast right now who cares about life and you got a little money, uh, hey, sponsor an event. Don't pay me an honorarium, pay them, host it, pay the expenses. And someone who has a platform, let's do a big event with abortion survivors. Um, if this blessed you and you want this word to get out uh, to more and more people. If you want to support the show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Crowdfund, support us, more guests, better content, man on the street content. We appreciate it. Um, if you want to connect with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, see my speaking schedule, or to book me for an event with 2022, which is filling up quickly. Thank you guys for tuning in. I'm sure this episode blessed you. We'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is... Unaborted. <laughs>